Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Have you ever wondered about the history of the sommelier profession? It's something I think about a lot. Some of the earliest sommeliers were slaves in ancient Greece, and it was the slave's job to remove wine from amphora into drinking vessels and to prepare wine for consumption in general. Wine preparation seemed to move into doctor-like territory in ancient Egypt and in Roman Italy, when wine used to be steeped with fruits and healing herbs. Wines steeped with herbs and spices were considered to have healing abilities, and it was often drunk as medicine. Wine was also used on open wounds to disinfect the areas. But as Pasteur and other contributors to 19th century medicine began to unravel the secrets of microorganisms, wine's place in medicine waned. But the revelation of the microworld also drastically transformed how wine can be made in wineries and what wine can ultimately be. But the modern-day sommeliers can find their roots in the Middle Ages in Europe. During feudalism, when nobles would travel, they'd take large caravans from village to village and court to court, kingdom to kingdom. And in the caravans, drawn by animals, different people would be in charge of different cargo. These servants, charged with organization and transport of a particular type of cargo, were called sommeliers. When the caravan stopped, it's possible that royalty continued to call for this or that cargo. The sommelier and the household butler began to cross territories in the 1300s. Butlers selected wines for wealthy households, and many kept records indicating vintage and cost variations. Then things started to shift when the entire system of feudalism began to crumble. With the fall of kingdoms and nobility, and with the rise of humanism and enlightenment, wine stewards ceased to be slaves and servants and serfs and butlers, and they began to be free people working for themselves in a free market. Restaurants are relatively new concepts that arose during the French Revolution. Without castles and courts to supply wine to, consumption moved towards restaurants. Chefs that had cooked for aristocrats who had been killed in the Reign of Terror found themselves out of patronage and out of a job. 
and a few entrepreneurial chefs opened up public restaurants in Paris in the wake of the French Revolution. In these interesting a la carte restaurants, wine lists began to mimic the a la carte menus, as in many individual selections that could be ordered by the bottle as opposed to one house wine. Previously, in inns and taverns, people ordered house wine from barrels, and they got whatever mass-produced food was made in the kitchen. But in a la carte restaurants, individual meals were available to order, and soon individual wines were available to order by the bottle. Instead of a mug from a cask, you could order this or that bottle from this or that vintage in a public venue. The appeal of a la carte dining spread throughout the world, and now a la carte dining is the normal way to dine in most countries. This is a pretty incredible social shift, especially considering that the modern-day a la carte restaurant has only been around for about 300 years. As estate bottling came to be the preferred method of packaging wine for transport and consumption, the ability to collect multiple bottles from multiple vintages and producers increased, and by the mid-1900s, there were several professional sommeliers controlling wine cellars around the world. Hotels in big cities often had sommeliers in charge of their wine cellars, and we can find evidence of sommeliers who worked in big New York City hotels in the decade just after Prohibition. The sommelier profession in its modern form is really made possible by two important factors. Number one, by the social shifting that led to the restaurant format of public dining. And number two, the shift in wine trade packaging to estate bottling. How did glass blowers contribute to the standard 750 milliliter bottle format over the last 500 years? Stay tuned for next week's warm up to find out. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand evelyn de pomperion of domain du closel and also chateau de vaux which is the same same property hello how are you i'm fine thank you very much i'm uh, very happy to be in new york it's a very exciting city nice to so, have you here thank you so you were originally teaching english and other foreign languages to s adult students in in europe and united states no i was teaching french oh okay french, french as a foreign language yes that was my first uh, career if i can say so 
Yes, and uh, I had four children, which was also occupied a lot of my time. Um, and then when we came back to France, my mother asked me if I would take over the domain. So that's how it happened. But that was only the second part of my life. So you were already about 50 at that time. Yes, exactly. Where did the domain come from? How long had it been around? Well, the, the domain has been in my family since uh, approximately 1850. And always has belonged to women who didn't have children for some reason. So gave the domain to their niece. Three times that happened. And um, the last woman was my mother before me. And she's still there, still active, but now I, I am the the one in charge, really. And you took over in about 2001. That's right, yes. So um, that was a very big challenge for me, because uh, I had drunk a lot of wine, <laughs> but I had no idea how to proceed. So I, I just took a, a very interesting course that took me around the world, and it gave me an idea of what the world industry was and what I wanted to to do or what I didn't want to do. That, that was really a very good thing from that standpoint. And um, <clears throat> it, it helped me make a deci uh, design my strategy. So I developed uh, UNO-tourism because I was very impressed in South Africa and California by beautiful domains with, who had built chateaus and designed parks to set up um, surround, nice surroundings for the wine. And I had that, so I didn't have to, to create anything new. And also I felt very comfortable with having guests and having visitors and smiling to them. I knew how to do that <laughs> and having a drink with them. Uh, so really, I, I liked the idea. And um, the other part of my development was export, but we already exported even to the US, we already exported, but you know, you have to continue and things change. And so that's how I, I started. And um, very soon um, I realized that we had to be organic. I had been raised very organically. <laughs> when we were children, my mother thought, we shouldn't go to school too long because it was not healthy. <laughs> we should be sent out to the country. We used to live in Paris. So she sent us out to our grandparents who were absolutely wonderful people and had lovely vegetable gardens and running chicken, <laughs> things that had taste. And it taste was something very important in their lives. And I can remember very strong taste of my childhood, like, you know, hot raspberries in the vegetable garden or tarragon or uh, geese, real geese. You, you very seldom have real geese now, <laughs> real goose. <laughs> so taste was always something that I, I was into. And uh, when they had guests, after, we, didn't, we couldn't drink the wines, but after the meal, we used to finish the glass. <laughs> so I had an idea of what good wine was. And I had tasted some as an adult also, of course. Um, so you're making Sauvignon from the Chenin Blanc grape? Yes. Sauvignon is only Chenin Blanc, normally. Some people have tried other grapes, but I think it's really the Chenin Blanc that 
can express that landscape. And um, it's only Chenin Blanc allowed, officially. And what is that landscape? Well, the landscape is very beautiful. It's three hills of schist, you know, like the slate, facing the Loire. So you have this beautiful Loire light, which you never see anywhere else. And you have the, under your feet, you have this schist, which is warm. You know, it's a very black or dark green or dark red stone, and it accumulates the heat. So it's a very, very interesting climate and very good exposure. The hills face south, and you have the Loire that brings up from, it's not far from the Atlantic. So the air from the Atlantic comes up and... It's it's a very unique climate and exposure and lovely view, too. And what do you think about the Chenin Blanc grape in terms of its flavors? Well, I think Chenin Blanc by itself doesn't have very characteristic flavors. It picks up the soil, picks up the landscape. If you taste the Chenin Blanc from Savenière or from Vouvray, it's like two totally different things, which I think is very interesting. So I like to work with Chenin Blanc from that standpoint. And do you find the aging curve of those two kinds of wines to be very different? Chenin Blanc and Fouvray? I think they both age very well. I think Chenin Blanc ages very well, especially from the Loire. I I don't know. I have bought a lot of South African Chenin Blanc. I don't think they age that well because they are from very hot climate and they don't have as much acidity. I think that plays a role. But in the Loire, if they are properly kept uh, and good cork, they really age both very well. Differently, but very well. <laughs> so gradually after you took over the estate, you started introducing more organic and biodynamic practices. Yes, I, um, I believe very much in the idea that a terroir uh, is important and it's something very unique. And if you want to express the terroir, you can't possibly put chemicals in it. You change things. What is interesting is to really let that soil-light combination work. That's what fascinates me. And that because also because that's different every year. If, if you use chemicals, you sort of have the same thing every year. It, it you know, it's... It, levels differences and I I love this diversity and you have different plots and yes in these in these hills you have the slope that is really schist then you have the top that is like a plateau at the top of the hills and there is some sand that has been I don't know maybe brought by the wind or maybe it it stayed from a time when the sea was there I mean, the geologists disagree, but nobody was there, so we don't know. And um, then you have some sort of coulée. Coulée in Savenière means a little valley. So you have the famous coulée de Serran, but you have other coulées. And Claude du Papillon, for example, is one of them. And in those coulées, you have um, lots of different kinds of stones that have been brought by the glaciers, I think. And so it's a very complex soil. So you really have three types of soils in seven years. And why is it called Clota Papillon? Well, if you if you look on the map, it's not so obvious when you walk there, but if you look on the map, you have the path.
path going up, which would be the body of the butterfly. And then you have the wings. Yeah, uh, the, sh the parcel has the shape of two wings. So the right wing, when you go up, is Beaumont's, uh, and the left wing is mine. But they are two. They are very different. On the right, it's more some of the sand on schist, and on my side, it's really this rocky soil. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, they're quite different. So you have four hectares there. Yeah, it's a twelve hectare zone mm. of the Clodopapion, mm. and all of your four hectares are on one wing. Yes. And mm. maybe Beaumars is on the other wing? Or? Yes, he's totally on the other wing, yeah. So in a way, I should sort of think of them as two different vineyards. Yeah, absolutely. They're separated by this path. So, How do you find the characteristics of Clodopapion to express themselves generally in a wine? Well, I, there is a lot of complexity, and it talks a lot. <laughs> if you If you have it in your mouth it really remains for a long, long time. And you have all kinds of different impressions. You you have, uh, it depends upon the age of the wine, of course, but you you still have some citruses aromas uh, first, and then it goes to more um, apricot and, and then very mineral or also grilled almonds, you know, sometimes grilled nuts. And then it goes on to honey and wax, you know, more like a Riesling. It has something in common, I think, with Riesling. So it's really very interesting. It's, it's like a long sentence with different parts, you know, talks a lot, <laughs> like me, I think. <laughs> in terms of the growing, tell me about the vine work. The vine work, that's the most important thing. Um, First of all, uh, as I said, I believe really in terroir. So the, the, the soil needs to be alive. And in order to have the soil alive, in, in the soil you have one billion microorganisms per gram of earth. So you have a, a lot of people working there <laughs> and you want them to be happy. So for them to be happy, they have to have oxygen. So you need to plow, but not, not deep, just sort of plow superficially the ground to bring oxygen in. And you have to have them have food. Uh, when you grow vine, you don't change your culture every year. You, you keep them, hopefully, for 70, 80 years. So what we do is we grow, or we let grass grow between the rows, which is now quite common. But uh, we have, at the beginning, we, we, I would seed some things. And now I just let the local plants grow. I think it's more interesting because of it also, also these plants are going to be natural habitat for the insects. And the insects are going to be food for the birds. <laughs> it's all about biodiversity and finding a balance between everybody. You know, so that grass has we 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 mulch it once in a while, and that is going to decay along with the the when we prune the vine. Also, we we sh we shrew the branches, and that feeds the microorganism of the soil. And we add a little bit of um, 
uh, how do you call that the fumier the from cow cow manure oh okay cow, cow manure. manure yes the cow manure we 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 are very lucky there is an organic farm nearby so they sell us some cow manure and i put the um, biodynamic preparation in it so it stays for about four or five months before we use it and then so it has a lot of life in it and that's very good food for the for the ground so when your when your ground works then the plant is happy because it's uh, when all these microorganisms work they they bring they decay the the, the stones you know and they're that digestion goes into the water that's running in the ground and that goes into the roots of the plant and that feeds the plant and then you get into the berries this taste of the ground. You know, if you have nobody working in the ground, you get water, but you get watery berries. <laughs> so it's important that all this system works. And you've been grafting masal vines on the old rootstock. Yes, uh, yes, we have done that. That's that's a very interesting thing, and I've been doing experimentation on that. It's it's tricky because many of the old veg, uh, old vines have some disease. It's not only esca, you know, they have you have many different kinds of disease. I thought my vines were wonderful, and I I say you know we pick up this and this, but they, <laughs> a lot of them have disease you don't know about because they still grow and produce grape, but you shouldn't reproduce that too much. So I have now I, I have planted three hectares of uh, young vines that I bought from the only organic nursery in France. And I take pieces to graft from these vines that are free of disease normally. So I graft them on all rootstock, yes, but also and uh, oh, I have planted some rootstock also from this nursery. And um, I wait until they, they become uh, strong enough. And then I'm going to graft them soon now. So it, it grows faster than when you plant just a, a, a gra already grafted vine. It's better to have already the rootstock. And to, to graft it in the vineyard. Yes. So we, we need to do that because we have ESCA, like everybody else, and that's a terrible problem. Uh, you know, ESCA, nobody knows exactly how it happens. Uh, obviously, it's a problem of, uh, it's like a, <coughs> a heart attack. The vine, from one day to the other, to the next, she, she it dies. It suffocates because the little pipes where the sap goes up all of a sudden gets uh, you know closed some people say that it's because of the pruning that we do too close to the wood now some other people say it's bad grafting in the last uh, 20 or 30 years from the nurseries with this omega grafting which is not a very natural way you know it's a crooked thing <laughs> so it, it can block the circulation of the sap um, other people say nurseries have worked on the ability of the vine to 
fight against uh, mildew and oidium, but then they have weakened the other functions. And so that's how, and so some of the fungus that are on the roots, which have to be there, have been disbalanced or unbalanced. I don't know how you say that. I think it's all of that probably. But then we have dying, die, you know, dead vines, and we have to replace them. That's why we have to graft. And is it a problem in certain vineyards more than others, or with certain vine age more than others? Mm-hmm. Yes. Very old vineyards don't have that. It's mostly from the years, um, I think from the 80s. 80s, yes, as of the 80s. Before that, they're free from Esca. So there is something. And what about some of the other parcels that you farm? I have a generic seven-year, which comes from most of my parcels that are um, schist, and I call it La Jalousie, but Jalousie is the name of a tiny area, but it covers all this schist. Uh, it's mostly gray, gray schist, I mean uh, green schist, I'm sorry. Then I have another area, which is called Les Caillardières, and that's schist and sand. It, it's a very interesting wine. It's um, a little bit off dry sometimes. Sometimes it's dry, but it has a sort of a softness to it, even if it's totally dry. It's a velvety wine. Uh, it's very central, sensuous, no, would you say? Central? <laughs> central. <laughs> it seems that at the same time that you were moving towards biodynamic mm-hmm. farming, you also started to allow more malolactic conversion of the wines in your cellar, longer ferments, and and longer lees aging. Is that true? Yes, but um, when you you grow organic, organically or biodynamically, you you get grapes that have everything. Uh, So you, you don't need in the cellar to first of all, you don't need to do anything. They just ferment and and, and you know evolve by themselves you don't have to to interfere and also they they already have a good balance so you don't have to use so much sulfite which is why the malolactic appeared it's basically because we have decreased the sulf- use of sulfite enormously now we for uh, not always but if there is a risk if the if there is some rot in the harvest, which is not a bad term in our way, it means it's a v- very very mature grape. Then we would put two grams per hectoliter on the harvest, and then nothing during the whole fer- fermentation and and élevage. So it's really very very small doses. Then the malolactic appeared, but strangely enough, it's malolactic is done. On, on jalousie, which is in tank and has, you know, it's bigger, more wine in a tank than in a barrel. It very seldom appears in the barrels for Claude du Papillon. So that's, I let, you know, I don't induce it. It does it or it doesn't do it. I think it's the wine finding itself the right balance. And I, I think it's fascinating. And what about the lees aging? Well, lees aging, we've always done it. Uh, but not so long. But the reason why we couldn't do it is that we didn't have 
air-conditioned cellar. We don't in Savignères you don't have underground caves or cellars. Schist is a very hard stone, and in the old time you couldn't carve it. So we have it's a it's a building, and I put air condition. So now we can leave, you know, we can have the wine on lease for several months, uh, even two years. Papillon is usually about two years. Yeah. And longer fermentation, sometimes up to a year. Yes. <laughs> that I was terrified at the beginning. But it's because we don't add any yeast. It's natural yeast. And it, even though it's air-conditioned, it follows the rhythm of nature. It's very funny. When, when winter comes early and is very cold, which happened two years ago, then the wine goes to sleep doesn't do anything until spring comes. When you hear the first birds singing, then usually you see the wine fermenting again. So this year we didn't have a winter and the fermentations went, they're they are over now. They've been over for about a month. But it's usually slower fermentations, yes. So do you see a difference in the taste of the wines that you're producing today, given that there are differences year to year mm. with the taste of the wine say from the 90s before you arrived yes yes uh, obviously the use of sulfite makes a big difference first of all uh, the the wines used to be very strict and very closed which didn't mean that they were bad but you had to open the bottle two days before drinking it or shake it or <laughs> do something to open up the wine now I think they are much more open. And it's fascinating when we taste in the barrels every week, you know, in the cellar during fermentation and after. Uh, it's The wine seems to be unstressed, open, happy, talking to us. <laughs> I never had that before. Now I understand what's going on. Before it was just, clo I was terrified. I thought, Ooh, is that going to be really a good wine? Now it's it's much more open. And I think the the lees are protecting the wine. So we keep it longer on the lees because it's it, 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 it protects the wine. It replaces the sulfite, really. So if I were to drink one of your wines, when should I be drinking it? And what should I be eating it with? The Shannon wines. Yeah. Well, the I really um, produce... Two, in the States, you find Jalousie and Claude du Papillon, mainly if there is very little of Le Caillardia. Jalousie, my idea is to have a, a wine that you can drink young, because many customers like that. They like fruity aromas. So I harvest it when the berries are yellow, translucid. And at that point, when the skins are like that of the Chenin Blanc, then during the fermentation, you have some very fresh fruit aromas that are coming. Um, and you can drink that young. Like we are now selling Jalousie 2012, and I think it's open, it's lovely. You can take it at in the evening after work to relax, <laughs> just enjoy. You don't have to have food with it. But you can also enjoy, uh, soon I'm sure you will have asparagus or interesting vegetables and that's unusual that you can find a wine that can face asparagus for example or artichokes so that's a nice uh, wine for it it's lovely with fish 
white meat also. Clos du Papillon is much more sophisticated and I harvest it about two, three weeks after jalousie when the skins have turned brown. And that means that during the fermentation you will have more mineral taste. It's not so much the fresh fruit, it will be very different, very different range of aromas, more grilled nuts and things like that. That's really a wine, I think, for gastronomy. It's like a little spice. You know, French food is not very spicy because we always had the wine at the table. That was our spice. <laughs> and um, for example, a, a lovely lobster or a, a, a very nice turbot, you know, good fish. Uh, those have interesting structures, uh, but they don't have very strong taste. But with the papillon, it's like giving them a little spice. It's very delicate. I think that's lovely. Also truffles. Of course, you don't eat truffles every day. But, <laughs> but um, for example, the Papillon 2008, it, it's, it smells of truffles. And it's lovely to have um, like veal, you know, which is a white meat and truffles or nice chicken and truffles and that wine. So what is the history of Savignier? Your property has been there since the 1450s. Mm -hmm. Your family has owned it for over 100 years, passed down generation to generation. Not too long ago, the appellation of Savignier effectively doubled, where the mm -hmm. neighboring area was also now Savignier. How should I understand Savignier as a place that has changed over time? Mm -hmm. Well... We don't know exactly when vine was first planted, but we we have signs that it was during the Roman time, probably second century after Christ or third, something like that. Then monasteries appeared all over France, and they were farming the vines. And that happened in our area. There were huge monasteries in Angers, extremely rich. And they were covering, they were really farming all this area that we know. We have uh, archives uh, on that. So that was early Middle Age. And then they became so rich that the people, young people, young men who wanted really to lead a spiritual life were not interested anymore in <laughs> entering monasteries because they were just having a great time managing <laughs> their business, <laughs> not so much having a spiritual life. So sp gradually, monasteries declined. And at that point in seven years, uh, they didn't have so, so many monks to farm, so they gave the land to be farmed at, to local peasants, local people. And uh, that's when we have our first documentation, our first archive showing that there was a Seigneur des Vaux, you know, the name of the chateau is Chateau des Vaux, so it means Lord of the Valleys. And it was a little lord, <laughs> no big thing. He had a tiny house, of which we still have one wall, and he had already um, vine, orchard, and garden. And we still have vine, orchard, and garden. <laughs> so I think it's quite nice. This property was sold many, many times during the these, uh, you know, 16, 17, and uh, 18th century. 
it was bought and sold by different people from Angers, usually bourgeois, you know, who had made money and, and were interested in having a good vineyard. The reputation of the vineyard, which was not named Savonnière at that point, it was more named Coteau de la Loire, and Coteau de la Loire, around Savonnière, Bouchemin and La Poissonnière, which are the two next villages, were had a very good reputation. They were obviously producing very good wines. Also, what was interesting is that the, the Loire is right at the bottom of those hills, and the wines could go directly uh, on ships to, the, to Nantes and then were exported for a long time. And then in the mid-19th century, um, have, uh, my family arrived in the area, not at all for vine, but for we, ha having bought a, a charcoal mine in the area. My ancestor had uh, had several daughters, and he was very. He became very close friend to the owner of Savonnière, who had no children. Of her. He, he he had no. He had a daughter, but his, this daughter didn't have children, and she gave it to my uh, to my aunt. So that's how it arrived in my family. But before that, it was bought and sold many times. And also for the other properties. So what happened when, in the 19th century, we had a big event. It was the construction of the rail track, which was supposed to replace the Loire. And um, so some families from Angers got very interested and built chateaus and designed parks around their chateaus in order to farm the, the vines and have... Uh, you know, prestigious uh, appearance. And so that's when all these chateaux have developed in seven years. But now uh, only, what, yeah, there is Domaine aux Moines, Coulet de Serran, Chateau de la Roche our chateau, and Chateau des Pierres. Only four now are related to the vineyards. And um, you asked me if, why it developed. Well, what happened is that about nine years ago, uh, we decided that people could vinify grapes from Savonnière, not only in Savonnière and Rochefort, which is the village on the other side of the Loire, but also in the whole département of Maine-et-Loire, which is Anjou, roughly. And that changed. So many winemakers from the Léon, of course, were interested because they couldn't have you know, a place to vinify in Savonnière, but they could farm vines and bring the grape to their own vineyard and, and vinify Savonnière. So that's why today there's about 35 exactly. producers yeah. making Savonnière. Yes, and that was a very smart decision, I think, because it's more interesting to be 35 than to be only 10 or 12. And do you think that's better for the market too, in terms mm. of establishing a presence? Definitely. It's better for, for quality because there is more competition between us. Uh, it's better for uh, communication. To have 36 people talking about seven years is more than having just 10. And the market, there is more, uh, you know, we, there was very little wine to, for sale. So now there is more and that's better too. I think it's making it more well-known. So it's 154 acre, uh, hectares now. 
Your mother was the president of the seven-year AOC. She was the first woman to be president of an AOC body in France. And then you are now the president mm -hmm. of the seven-year yep. AOC. And what are the duties involved in that? What is What does that entail? And how has it been to, to follow your mother in that yeah. footsteps? That's that's a very good question. When when I when I got elected, nowhere is written what the president should do. <laughs> I asked, nobody could tell me, except there were some meetings I had to go. <laughs> Sounds like your mom did a good job of hiding the evidence then, you know. Well, my mother um um she was very proud to be the first woman to be elected president. Her task was really to adapt seven years to modern market. At that time, the appellation was only producing officially sweet wines. And obviously, the weather wasn't very good in the years when she was elected. And nobody could produce proper sweet wines. Everybody was asking either to add sugar, which is a dreadful thing, or to make sweet wine, to make dry wines, But it was an, supposed to be an exception. But the exception lasted for several years. So my mother thought this was ridiculous. And she had the decree change uh, so that we are allowed now to produce dry, demi-sec, or sweet. We can do the three. And I've never had one of these. There used to be a lot of sweets, sweet Sauvignon called Sauvignon. All Sauvignons are, are mostly sweet. Oh, really? Yes. From the 70s? and No, at that time... It had already it changed. But, I see. Yes, it. But the the very old ones from the 40s, the 50s, uh, are sweet. So I did. I didn't know yeah. that. They're beautiful wines, but when the year is bad, they're not beautiful wines. So would they be similar to like a Cote de Leon, like that kind of wine? Or? They're quite different from Cote de Leon. It it it's strange because it's not far, but it doesn't produce the same thing. They are more like Coteau de Laubance, which I don't think is very no, well known know in that. the United States. It's another little river that's parallel to the Coteau du Léon, and it flows through Brissac and, and flows into the Loire also, and produces wonderful, delicate, sweet wines. And Sauvignon is more like that. It's, it's a sort of a... It's not heavy. A sweet Sauvignon is never heavy. Because it has this acidity, I think, that's uh, making it sort of light, a feeling that it's very light. Sometimes I find the acidity in a seven year to be uh, quite stern, to mm -hmm. be, you know, quite uh, chiseled, um, even more so than other, you know, Chenin Blancs from yeah. the area. Mm. But then at the same time, I feel that there, maybe in more recent vintages and less decade or so mm. quite a bit of ripeness at the same time yes everybody you know there are trends everybody has tried to harvest riper and also the weather is warmer so we get quickly riper except for 2013 where it was very hard to get ripeness <laughs> and because everybody is using less sulfite we also have more malolactic you never had that before you know when i first had when that first happened in the cellar My mother looked at me as if I had killed someone. <laughs> she said, what did you do? <laughs> Now she likes it. But at first she was shocked. We're used to those very acidic wines. That was your mother's task to introduce the, the dry wines mm -hmm. on a regular basis. Yeah. What has been your task? Is well, it the tourism or? 
No, not so much. Tourism for my domain, but not as a president. No, my aim is to... It's like I, I, I gave myself the task of having really a common brand that everybody feels part of, responsible for. We we worked on our identity. I had the... <laughs> when I was elected, I invited everybody to my place and I we had a dinner. I make them drink <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and then I said, what do you think we are? You know, we, we really worked on our identity and we defined it. And now we're going to work on defining uh, how we want to communicate on seven years and setting up some rules that I will add to the decree, communication rules that will be common to everyone. I think it's very important that we all communicate. You know, we have the same message. Even, even it's it's wonderful that we have different wines. I don't think that matters, but we, there is, it's a family. You know, in a family you have different children, <laughs> but there is a common message. And that I want this. This is my aim, and spreading the message because it's it remains extremely confidential. Does it seem sometimes that there's a lot of strong individual personalities in in the seven year appellation? Oh, definitely. The the wine has a strong personality, and the winemakers too. And I think that's very interesting. Uh, you know, that's uh, that's wonderful. So how do you get them to agree? Do you feel like well, no, they're, they're, that's not a problem. I think if you show to a group a very distant point, focus to you know that's where we want to go, then they look and they go. <laughs> Honestly, uh, it's not a problem. Of course, sometimes we discuss and we disagree on, on on some points, but it's interesting. It's enriching, and then it makes it's a challenge then to find a better idea. But basically, they are all very happy to that you know we are going to have a better image and and be more known and being able to sell better also. What about the red wines that you produce, the Cabernet Sauvignon, the Cabernet Franc? Yeah, there's always been uh, red grapes in Sauvignon, probably more before than now, but there is still some. Uh, it's mainly Cabernet Franc, but we have also almost one hectare of Cabernet Sauvignon. It's an old vine. When the weather is is warm, you can produce very interesting wines. And now, recently, since the weather is getting warmer and warmer, it's it's great. Uh, however, with the schist, I found that it was very important not to do too much on the on the juice. You have to let it sit uh, so that it 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 works. It's like a tea. <laughs> I put the grapes at this time. I put the grapes in a tank and I let them sit for a week for Anjou Rouge or for longer for Anjou Village, without doing anything, without adding any sulfite at all. So there is no stress. And then you get a very fruity wine for Anjou Rouge or a more more um, sophisticated red wine for the Anjou Village, but it's not hard tannin. You know, before you used to have a feeling that you were eating pepper. <laughs> paper, not pepper. Pepper too, but <laughs> pepper and paper. <laughs> Now I think it's I really reach it took me a long time but I think now I'm I'm happy with uh, what I'm doing with the red grapes. So uh, for Anjou Rouge it's only Cabernet Franc 
An Anjou village is a blend of Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon. I was surprised to learn that you make a Verdello. Ah, <laughs> that's an interesting story. The Verdello appeared in, in, the, in, in the Loire area, really, in the 18th century. You know, at that time, big ships would bring a lot of trees and plants from South America and mainly. And uh, they brought some of these grape varietals from abroad. And Verdelio became very fashionable because it's extremely fruity. And that was in the, in the area, we didn't have very, very fruity grapes. And so I have found an old encyclopedia where it shows that it was very fashionable, very trendy. Everybody had its Verdelio. And it has remained. And uh, in seven years, you, you always had some Verdelio. It was not official, but uh, in the fall, you can see uh, some of the leaves turn a little different. The color is not the same. So there is less and less. But... Um, I shouldn't say that, it's very unofficial, but <laughs> my mother used to blend <laughs> some Verdelio in her wines. I didn't like that. So I, I kept the Verdelio because it's it's a nice area. And and, and I made, uh, I turned it into a different wine. So You mentioned the leaves, and I've heard you say before that you don't really like to remove leaves in general. What is your approach when you're doing canopy management towards leaves and the top of vines? It's an experimentation. When you walk through the vineyards in, in July, you see that people, it's like they've been to the hairdresser. <laughs> Everybody has cut the top. Obviously, you can't let vines become wild because they, they would break. Or, But um, if you cut the top, the plant reacts and it grows more leaves underneath and that brings more leaves around the bunches where it it, kept, it keeps humidity if there is and you don't want to have all these leaves around the bunches so i have made this experimentation of wrapping the what is growing above the all the wire you know wrapping it uh, around the top wire it's relatively expensive, and my workers do not very like very much to do that, but I think it's interesting uh, because then I don't get all these extra leaves around my bunches. And if you get these extra leaves, if you cut you, the top, you get extra leaves, then you have to take the leaves off, which is also expensive. So that's one thing. What I did, to because somebody told me it also makes, I mean, the wine will taste better. So I wanted to know about that. So I have done last year in the same area, half of the parcel is wrapped and half is has been cut. And we have two barrels, but we it's a little bit early to tell what the difference. But next time I see you, I'll tell you. <laughs> Speaking about years, are, are there vintages that have really stood out for you since 2001 in terms of ease or difficulty or mm. something you've learned for them? Yes. Well, we had two vintages when we had frost in 2008. We had frost in in March and b before the buds came out. So we thought 
you know, it doesn't matter. But when they came out, two-thirds were burnt. They were brown, black. So that was a big disappointment because we had very little wine in 2008. And in 2012, we had frost in early June. Two nights in a row, minus four, minus five. So not everywhere in the vineyard, but it killed also uh, a large part of the of the of the flowers and the, the buds, and so little harvest. So it doesn't. The vintages are good, but they are very limited. And uh, I've learned from that that it's nice to have some stock, <laughs> so that you can still provide wine to your clients. Because if you have nothing to sell, you know your importers they go to someone else. <laughs> it's not easy to manage. <laughs> so yes, and then 2013 was very very difficult in terms of harvest. The because the spring was cold and rainy. Um, the the flower came out around Ju July 7th, and normally. It's around June the 15th, so it's three weeks late. That means that the, the berries are going to be mature three weeks later, which really happened. So in September, it started raining, and all the, 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 the berries, you, you started to see botrytis, but the berries were green, and the skins were still thick. You couldn't possibly make proper wine with that. So I made a very hard decision. I said, we are not harvesting green grapes. I'm sorry, but <laughs> we're waiting. And I was very lucky because after a week, we had lost some grapes, but we had the, the grapes were mature. It was, we, I could harvest jalousie properly, and I could wait for papillon also. And what about botrytis as a part of a dry wine in terms of a style? Is that something you yes. embrace to have a bit of botrytis in there? Yes, I, I like for papillon. I don't mind having botrytis. I think it's it's quite interesting. As I told you, I, I harvest it late, so there is most of the time uh, botrytis on those grapes. Um, I like I like it. Fine, I just I like it. <laughs> I think you have to make the wine you like. <laughs> have you decided which? Uh, female heir will be the next in line for <laughs> Chateau de Vaux? I can't decide for my children, but um, I don't know. I have two girl, two daughters and two sons, and they all love to drink seven years. <laughs> They're very supportive. Right now, they have other jobs, but, you know, my mother started when she was 50. I started when I was 50, so it's uh, it's fine. I can wait a little bit. My eldest daughter um, is probably the one who is the more interested in uh, vinification and culture. I think I have a son who is who would be a very good in managing from the financial standpoint. So maybe it will be a uh, you know a team, <laughs> which I think is nice. Evelyn de Pontebrion of Chateau de Vaux and Domaine de Clausel, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. <laughs> Evelyn de Pontebrion of Domaine de Clausel. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. 
Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.